Welcome to The Read Along, a mini book club for your ears, a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. I'm your host, Scott. I'm your other host, Anita. And join us on a journey through a good book, one, one chapter, chapter at, at a time. With PodPower, our sponsors are making it possible for us to amplify the voices of Albertans and Alberta podcasters. This episode, the Edmonton Community Foundation is helping us give a PodPower shout-out to Overdue Finds, an Edmonton Public Library podcast. Bryce Crittenden and Carolyn Land host conversations about books, movies, music, pop culture, and other interesting news about Edmonton. It's a great way to learn more about what's happening at EPL and how you can use your library card to access all of EPL's in-person and online services. To listen and find Find out more about overdue fines, head to epl.ca slash podcast. Ten books. Complete. Already? Yeah. We've done ten books? We've, we've done like 250 episodes. Oh. Happy book anniversary. I think. I guess. Is that a thing? Sure. I'm going to make it a thing. It's a it's, thing now. Happy uh, book anniversary. Yeah. We, and, I mean, famously, we have mentioned before that we would have been pleased if we'd just gotten through a book. That would have fulfilled the mandate of this podcast. That's true. It was sort of a little pet project that has turned into a life project. Yeah, a thing we've just kept doing. <laughs> yeah, it's so. a thing we do. A little family time for the two of us. It's nice. But if I'm saying that we've completed our 10th book, that must mean that we are into our famous full book club episode. Full book club. Get as... your wine. Get your snacks. We're going to do this. Yeah. As we do a full analysis of... Our 10th novel, Phoenix Extravagant, by Yoon Ha Lee. So I guess the, the first question off of anybody's mind at this juncture would be, did you like the book? I did like the book. Did you like the book? I liked the book. I liked the book. Yeah. I mean, I, I can spot some flaws here and there. Oh, it's I, hard to say there's a perfect book out there. Yeah, I, and I mean, that's true for most novels. I exactly. Um, especially when we scrutinize them to the level that you and I do mm-hmm. as we slowly digest it chapter to chapter. But uh, overall, quite enjoyable. I thought the characters were neat. I thought the world was different as fantasy worlds go. I've come to appreciate worlds that draw from a different culture than standard high fantasy, the, the Tolkien kind of branch of high fantasy where it's very Eurocentric. Yeah. So being able to visit an African fantasy recently and now being able to visit more of an Asian fantasy, it's, it's been a delight. Yeah. I liked it quite a lot, actually. It was uh, very different visuals in my head than I'm used to constructing with a book, especially after coming off of like an African fantasy novel. Yeah. Where the visuals were very different. Yeah. And it's also interesting to get it from a... Korean historical standpoint because yeah. you're when you when you think of Asian fantasy Japan's probably the first one that springs to mind yeah because of the proliferation of anime and manga which mostly stems from there and then Chinese after that would probably be the the next largest inspiration for that kind of fantasy mm-hmm. with wuxia and and kung fu cinema so seeing something coming from the Korean peninsula it gives you a different perspective. And they are people who have dealt with colonialism for a long time. Oh, absolutely. They've been conquered by basically everybody around there at one point <laughs> or another. And so, like, you can see how that 
impacts the historical perspective. And it's interesting to see that come through in Yoon Ha Lee's writing. Agreed. I also found it very refreshing that our lead character was a non-binary person. And there was also uh, like a, a major slice of a character's life that uh, that she came, Vey's life specifically, that she came from a polyamorous family. But that's not the point of the story. No. Like that's not what the story is about. It's perfectly normalized that this is just the way this world is. And I loved that. I found it very refreshing. And I think we need more of it in the world. Yeah, it's interesting to kind of look at because it almost doesn't deal with those issues because in this fantasy world they're almost non-issues exactly and i loved that they were non-issues because they shouldn't be issues to begin with yeah it just presents them as absolutely normal and nobody even bats an eye yeah because it's just the way the world works and i loved that it's it's not everything about this world is the way i want the world to work but that aspect of it like i like i just said we need more of it in this world yeah it's the way you normalize that in society is to normalize that in pop culture to a certain extent. Yeah. In, in At media, least it wouldn't in, hurt. <laughs> in media that we are consuming. So showing a perfectly functional polyamorous family, making your main character just casually non-binary, and having it just be a non-issue. Yeah. That and, is, that is, you're right. It's and Jebby's not the only one. No. Right? It's, it's a very common thing to be. Yeah. And I... I really appreciated that. Well, and further to that also, I mean, Bong Sunga and Gia were in a, a lesbian relationship. Yeah. Totally not an matter. issue. Yeah. Nope. So just very queer characters from top to bottom yeah. for the most part. And I mean, again, that's that's drawing from Yoon Ha Lee's own history, because Yoon Ha Lee is is a trans man. It's nice to read a story where that is very normalized and that the people are still people. Like, this isn't a trans story. It's just a story that happens to have trans Trans, people. Yeah, it's a story that happens to have trans people in it, and it doesn't matter. Okay, so this is a question I wrote down because I thought it would make good discussion, but I realized I'm having trouble answering it myself. So maybe if you help me talk through it, I'll achieve something satisfactory for my brain. What do you think Yoon Ha Lee was trying to say with this novel? I don't really know what the underlying moral of the story actually is. At least not in a way that I can put very succinctly. Well, I mean, there's definitely a large extent of colonialism bad. Well, yes. (laughs) (laughs) There's, right through, there's a, a strong element of, like, preserving history. And not letting your culture and your history be subsumed or destroyed by uh, an invading force. And that there's value in preserving that history to the point of it can be its own form of revolution. Because at the end, that's what Jebby and Vey and Arazi do. Yeah. Is they, they take the precious treasures and they flee to the moon. And that is presented as just as valuable and just as noble as staying and fighting the the bad guys who were there occupying your land. Yeah. It, it's almost like a Asian fantasy version of The Monuments Men. You remember that movie? Uh, I did not watch The Monuments Men. No? No. Did I not watch that with you? Nope. Oh, okay. My bad. Uh, the Monuments Men is uh, a very good movie about a bunch of white men who, during the Second World War, are trying to save 
the culture, right, in, in saving art, right? Sculpture, paintings, so that the Nazis don't steal it or destroy it, yeah. right? They're trying to put these treasures back where they belong because it is an important cultural piece. This is, to me, uh, very much in the same vein, just with a different culture. Well, and it's the whole Indiana Jones thing of uh, it belongs in a museum. Maybe it doesn't, or certainly not in your, your museum. museum. Not um, saying it doesn't belong in a museum, because some things should absolutely be protected and not left out in the elements. Maybe not your museum. Yeah. Because they're not Yours. your treasures. Um, And I mean, the British Museum gets a lot of flack because they have a lot of precious treasures that were looted from other countries mm -hmm. by the colonial British Empire. Mm -hmm. But with this story, it even goes one step further because the Rosani are not just looting Hwaguk's treasures. They're destroying them. Yes. Like it's outright and cultural then, eradication. Absolutely. And then using the destruction of to those treasures. To further their occupation. Yeah. And that's even worse. <laughs> it's bad to destroy these things. And it's even worse to turn them around and use them against the people that made them in the first place. Yeah. It's an actual perversion of their history and art. Yeah. It's horrible. Pretty bad. <laughs> yep. Really terrible. Ha ha. That still doesn't answer the moral of the story. I think I- Kind of. Kind of succinctly did present a moral there. Well, that's true. I don't know if I feel like that's what the book is about, though. You know what I mean? Like, I wrote down, well, here, let's let's do this again with a different question. Could you describe the, like, theme of this book in a sentence? Art is precious. <laughs> what I wrote down is, this is the story of an artist finding their place in the bigger picture. I know it's very metaphorical, but to follow Jebby's storyline, Jebby sort of thinks they know where they belong, and they're trying to fit in and trying to make their way because they just want to do art, but they get wrapped up in this rebellion and realize that there's so much more to their world, and now they don't really know what to do with themselves. Like, to me, that seems like Jebby's entire story arc. There's a little bit of character development. It's not like a huge turn. Oh my goodness, they're a whole different person. Yeah, it's like an adult coming-of-age story. Sort of. It's a very modern coming-of-age story because... That's a good way to put it, uh, I think. Because, yeah, like... <sighs> So many people in our generation who are in their 30s and their 40s are still trying to figure out their life. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I, I get it. It's a very modern coming-of-age story. Yeah, except that Jebby's not quite coming-of-age. Well, is it it's, the same as finding your place? And it's telling because everybody else around Jebby seems to have everything figured out, from Bongsunga to Vey to uh, even Hack. Earlier yeah. in the book, like they all seem to have an idea of where they belong and what they want to be doing, and and everything's fine. And Jebby's just kind of coasting for most of the book. Uh, yeah, that's very true. Yeah, that's why I think that Jebby doesn't go through a big character arc because Jebby is still Jebby by the end of the book. Yep. It Even Arazi, who's been alive for fifteen minutes, <laughs> has a pretty good idea what it wants to do. Yeah. Let's let's talk about us a little bit. Your favorite part. My favorite part? Your favorite part. Um, my favorite part is probably the twist near the middle, where it turns out that Vey is actually a double agent. Or at least a, a traitor in the midst. Ooh, that's a pretty good part. And helps Jebby escape. That kind of came out of left field, but was internally consistent, so it didn't... 
I was surprised, but not like shocked, yeah. if that makes sense. It was like, oh no, this tracks, but it also, I did not see that coming. Well done. A nice <laughs> swerve. <laughs> Excellent. My favorite part was uh, Arazi living vicariously through Jebby. And the, my most favorite, the, the peak of that, is Jebby's dirt prison cell art. Their great triptych mural that they did on their prison cell wall. Which was also further foreshadowing of going to the moon. Yes, which I did not see at the time, but know about now. That whole, like, paint for me scene as it played out in my head as I read through it, loved it. Yeah, you discussed, Absolutely my favorite discussed it in the episode. That yes. You, it was very cinematic in your brain. And now that we've reached the end, it is my, like, utmost favorite part. There you go. It was great. Loved it. If you could change anything about this book, any parts of the story, what do you think you would tweak? I would add something, because there's a plot element in the story that gets dropped that actually does irk me somewhat. And that is Asemi's assistant. Yes. Asemi's assistant is built up during the first part as this person who escaped with this triptych that Asemi had made. We never find out what happened to that. Like, there's no resolution to it whatsoever. And that actually does irk me somewhat as just a dangling thread. And I would like to resolve that. And it could have been as simple as Mirhai shows up at the rebel camp when Jebby and Vey get there. Or the rebels even just make mention of what happened to Mirhai, just so that we have the resolution of that. But the fact that Mirhai is in the wind and just gone is a little frustrating. Yeah. And then we to me never a, talk about yeah, it again. Exactly. That's why. And maybe it's just because we were reading the book so thoroughly that the fact that it never came back up actually sat with me. And so, yeah, that would be the major change I would make is that I would have a resolution to Mirhai. I talked about it in the episode uh, where we read the chapter. I would have a better resolution between Jebby and Bongsunga. Yeah, you wanted you wanted a little more emotional catharsis yeah. there. And that is entirely selfish. It is just for me because that is what I would have liked to have read. <laughs> if I was customizing this book to me, I would have liked that emotional resolution. And I would have taken out the downer ending. Eh. The downer ending is fine, especially if you're planning on making a sequel. I don't know if that's the case here. No, me neither. Um, and I can kind of see the logic behind it because history, unfortunately, has a tendency to not resolve itself so literarily. I think I would have just preferred the the flight to the moon, right? Going past the celestials and, and heading off into space. And yes, the looking down, I just would have cut the ships. Fair enough. Because I prefer... Happy endings to my stories. Your favorite character? Probably Vey. Why is that? Uh, number one being a cool duelist. Seems neat. Uh, I have a very strong uh, visual idea of what Vey looks like based on the descriptions, much more so than a lot of the other characters. And the fact that Vey surprised me in the novel as well. Because I do like a good swerve or twist that catches me off guard, but makes perfect sense. Where I'm like, oh, of course. <laughs> yeah. Aha, I am surprised, but also, aha, yes, that makes yeah. sense. That's why I like a good internally consistent mystery. Um, so they also surprising me in the story pleased me. Excellent. I'm going to go with Arazi. Uh, probably my second choice. The, the childlike delight <laughs> that that dragon took in everything it encountered outside of the ministry. Uh, just it just 
made me happy. I appreciate that Arazi is written in such a way that it is possessed of both uh, childlike naivete and ageless wisdom. I love that. In equal measure. Yeah. It's, it's very delightful. It's very wise yet innocent dragon. Yeah. Yeah, I loved that. I thought it was fantastic. So we frequently let these analysis episodes get a little out of hand. Some of them have been very long. We promised ourselves we'd try to keep this one a little more succinct. Yes. So with that said, and having uh, done a little book clubbing, perhaps it is time to get into Anita's favorite part of an analysis episode. Well, okay. Before we get into my favorite part, we should mention we're doing it a little bit differently this time around. Yeah. Um, full disclosure, I'm obviously I'm not completely um, oblivious to Korean media. It's very popular right now. Um, I have seen some Korean shows. I've seen some Korean movies, but I'm not super familiar with a lot of Korean actors. And so... I have decided rather, for me at the very least, rather than casting every character in the movie, I'm just going to hand off the movie to a particular director, and that's going to be my choice. Okay. So Scott and I talked about this before we recorded the episode uh, days ago, I'm sure. Actually, I think maybe even weeks ago, because uh, I'm in a similar boat. I have consumed not a large amount of Korean media. I've listened to some K-pop. I've seen some shows. Yeah, yeah. Right? Um, but being a middle-aged Canadian white woman, not super immersed. Yeah, so, you're not the target demographic. Exactly. <laughs> so instead of cast that movie, we're going to alter our segment a little bit into make that movie. Cast that movie. So do you want me to go first or do you want to go first? Oh, I don't care. You can go first. Okay. I think this should be a Korean language movie. Oh. Frankly. Obviously. Yes. A um, thousand percent, yes. Subtitled, obviously. For... Well, because I don't speak any Korean. Yeah, but uh, but I think it should be a Korean language movie starring a Korean cast. That would be my, my first big mm -hmm. thing. At the very, very least, an all Asian cast. Yeah, I'd, I'd still... Preferably Korean. I'd lean heavily on Korean, yeah. Agreed. I mean, Hafandin would probably... You could get a Japanese actor. No problem. Get your Ken Watanabe in there. Like, yeah, <laughs> you, you do that. But that's that's separate because he is a foreigner. I would hand this off to South Korean director Bung Joon-ho. And I know oh, that- I know that name. Why yeah, do I know that name? Well, won an Academy Award for Parasite. Uh, I realize that he is very much like probably the most famous South Korean director right now, but he's also very, very good. Yes. And he, I'm thinking of his work in The Host specifically, which was a monster movie. Um, which was also very, very good, uh, shows that he can work with uh, with uh, a practical or even digital effect in Arazi and do a very good job with it. So I would hand it off to him. I'd give him the keys to the kingdom. I'd say, make a, a big Korean fantasy movie. Here you go. <laughs> Here's and a I, dump truck of money. Yeah, and I don't think he would disappoint. No, probably not. Yeah. One does not win an Oscar just willy-nilly. Yeah. I mean, Parasite's a very different kind of movie yeah. than this would be. But that doesn't mean that he's... But he's he can shown... only direct in that one niche, right? Yeah, he's he's shown that he can direct in a couple different types of genres. I don't think he would disappoint. Mm -hmm. So I would be very comfortable handing it off to him. I don't mean for it to sound like a cop-out because he's the South Korean director everybody's heard of. I, I legitimately think he would do a good job with it. So. I, I agree with you. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about a couple of things that we would want in this movie. As much as I would like a large practical animatronic dragon, 
I don't know how realistic that is to get what you want out of it. I don't. I certainly wouldn't want uh, Rozzy to look like a Transformer from the Transformer No, movies. exactly. Busy and over, over-designed and uh, difficult to pay attention to because of that. I would prefer a practical effect. And I think that you could get away with it with Arazi in particular because Arazi looks, in my brain at least, like a robot. Less like a dragon and more like a robot dragon. It looks like a Power Ranger sword to me in my brain. <laughs> and I realized that like that that was translated when I was doing some of the images for episodes of this particular stretch. Uh-huh. But that's kind of what Arazi looks like in my brain. Yeah. So despite the fact that there is a large red dragon on the cover of the book, that's not what I pictured when I pictured Arazi. Yeah. I pictured more something like a cross between a robot and one of those beautiful parade dragons. Oh, sure. Yeah. That you see. That's what I pictured for Arazi. And I bet you could get away with a combo of practical and CG where necessary. Probably. To get the right effect. Because there's some things that are just too expensive and or impossible to do. Like you can't fly a mechanical dragon to the moon. No, that's going to be some digital effects. There's going to be some digital in there to get it to look right. I think the Celestials would be gorgeous in this movie. My choice for director, at the very least, has shown that he can do digital effects pretty good. I have faith in that. I just, I prefer practical effects. And for those of you who have never listened to my movie podcast, I have some notes, (laughs) which you should go and tune into. I frequently advocate for practical effects because they age better and they look better. Usually. You Usually. Yes, it's you can do stuff with digital effects that you can't do with practical effects. But generally, as a rule, a digital effect doesn't age as well as a practical effect. And a practical effect looks good, especially oh, yeah. when it's well done. I'm, I'm also very pro practical effects. Also because I come from a somewhat theatrical background and model making and prop making is a ridiculous amount of fun. Yeah. But I acknowledge that you must... In today's day and age, there are some things where you just must use a little digital enhancement. So I'm happy with the hybrid. I am going to posit something that just came to me. Because this is a book that deals so much in art, what if it was a hand-animated feature? Okay, I have an answer to this. This was my proposal because I was trying to decide if I wanted an animated show that was bright and colorful and magical, or if I wanted a very overly color-corrected live-action Well, and my brain always, when I'm reading a book, goes to live-action. I picture real people Mm -hmm. doing real things. But because of the subject matter of this novel, would it maybe work better as a hand-animated? And I would specify hand-animated because it deals so specifically with art. Yes. Are you thinking more like like an anime-ish style? It could be, especially if you're handing it off to, again, a Korean animator or Korean director. But yeah, I'm thinking if you've ever seen Loving Vincent. Stop what you're doing right now and go find Loving Vincent. It's a movie that is entirely animated in the oil painted style of Vincent Van Gogh. It's gorgeous. It is. But you could do something similar here, doing an animated feature that is derived from like older Korean art styles with like brush strokes and and whatnot. I think that would look visually fascinating to me and i i believe you could tell this story that way it would probably be very difficult you'd need the right director yeah but i think it could be done here's my proposal i don't know how well it would work but i think if you got it just right 
in the style of, I can't believe I'm going to say this, in the style of Kill Bill, where there are some scenes that are done in animation. There are some scenes done in black and white. There are scenes done in vibrant color. I don't see why we can't have a crazy mix of all of these different kinds of media together. Why not have things done specifically through Jebby's eyes in a beautiful art style? The way that Jebby would see them, like the duel. Um, I think the voice of Arazi is very important. And while I don't have a specific actor in mind, I know what I think I want the dragon to sound like. I want, I want like a deep bass, like powerful, booming voice. You'll have to alter it a little bit to make it sound mechanical because a human might not be able to do that. But that's what I want coming out of this dragon. I agree. And I also want Arazi's voice to not sound like a robot voice when in Jebby's head. Oh, that's so good. Yeah. Oh, I love that. That's how I would do it. Arazi Regular would... voice in head. And mechanical robot voice. voice out of robot. Oh, uh, but the same that. the same voice actor both ways. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Just altered and unaltered. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Oh, that's very good. Yeah, Je- Arazi should not sound like a machine when speaking directly to Jebby in Jebby's thoughts. Yeah. But should sound like a machine when actually talking. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's very good. I don't know. Any other notes? What else? What else would you like in this movie? What does the battle art look like? Uh, magic. <laughs> Just magic. It looks like glowy runes, well, not runes, glowy characters uh, drawn on the wall or on the ground or whatever, and then magic happens. That's <laughs> kind of what I see. It's right. admittedly pretty generic, but I'm sure that a skilled director with a good visual eye would be able to do something quite spectacular. And if you're doing it in animation, you definitely do something spectacular. Oh, yeah. All right. Any other... Any other producer notes for this movie that we're not making? No, I think uh, I think we've we've done quite a good job there. It's a little different than our normal cast that movie, but I, again, I honestly I like it. I'm not against changing it to make that movie from now on. Be like, well, these are the things we want out of this movie. I want it to be like artistic and colorful because that's kind of the point. <laughs> agreed. I want the dragon is really important. So the dragon has to look right and sound right. Arazi is very much at the heart of the story. Yeah, that's yep. a big deal for me. It is important to me that, yes, I agree with you entirely. It should be very Korean. Oh, for sure. Very Korean. I think you would be doing the source material a disservice if it wasn't very Korean. Yeah. And that's why I think it should be a Korean language movie produced in Korea. Like, yes, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Please, please make this and do it good. Yeah. And I think that they would do it right, more so than any white director in North America, for sure. They'd whitewash it too much, and then I wouldn't like it, I don't think. But there you have it. Phoenix Extravagant by Yoon Ha Lee, complete. Yay! We close it, we put it back on the bookshelf. Finish your wine. And now it's time to move into another novel, our 11th novel. My goodness. So we put out a Twitter poll, and... Uh, We asked, do you want a science fiction story, a horror story, or a mystery story, or just Nita's choice? Uh, Science fiction won out, but when we went looking, we actually found a science fiction horror mystery. (laughs) So (laughs) tick all the boxes. Congratulations, Twitter poll. You all won. (laughs) (laughs) 
The only thing you didn't win is that I I was not the one who found it. Scott found it. We we both went out and did a little book shopping, and in the end, I was the one who ended up selecting the book. But it yeah. got two thumbs up from Nita. It is more science fiction than the other two genres, though. So it, the the science fiction <laughs> did win the Twitter poll. It is still mostly it is found in the <laughs> sci-fi section of the bookstore. Yeah. So it is our hope that this book fits the Twitter poll exactly. With more science fiction than everything else. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Two years in deep space aboard the freighter Demeter has been a lesson in endurance for the small crew. Mechanics Ensign Reyna is ready to jump ship because her abusive ex is also aboard. Technical Sergeant Pollux is sick to death of her shipmates and can't wait to get reassigned. But a foreign biological creature has sneaked onto the Demeter. It's begun to wreak havoc on the ship and everyone on it, and the two women are about to come into their own. With the ship quarantined, it's up to the crew to save themselves, and Reyna and Pollux will have to rise to the challenge. They will soon discover there are both a monster and a murderer after them, and there's no way they're going to survive this alone. For our 11th novel on the read-along, we have chosen Anne Tibbet's Screams from the Void. Ooh, space music. Currently available uh, where books can be found. (laughs) <laughs> it is obviously in print. We have uh, one of two copies that was at the bookstore, so it is readily available. Uh, so yeah, you'll want to pick that up in time for next week when we will be diving right in with chapter one. Looks like it'll be a good read. Yeah, starting anew with a new book. In space! <laughs> I Which, ironically, recommend... where our last book ended. Oh, so well, that's convenient. Yeah. It's almost like a segue. I highly recommend uh, picking up the version that we have. Is there a picture of it on our... There will be. The cover of this is quite pretty. And I know, don't judge a book by its cover, blah, blah, blah. But this one's really pretty. I like it. Yeah. It's all spacey. So you'll want to read that first chapter of that new book in time for next week when we'll be diving right in. In the meantime, while you're out uh, shopping for books, you might uh, realize, hey, you know, my wallet's got a couple extra bills in there. And I would like to give back to my community somehow. And uh, wouldn't you know it? The Edmonton Community Foundation right here in Edmonton does allow you to set up your own endowment funds to help support things like culture and the arts and uh, social programs. And uh, there's a podcast that they produce that's all about talking about how that happens. Hello, I'm Elizabeth Onkink. I'm Andrew Paul. And we're the hosts of The Well-Endowed Podcast. The Well-Endowed Podcast is produced by Edmonton Community Foundation, or ECF as we call it. ECF provides grants to charities through the endowment funds we create and manage with our donors. Hence the title of our show, The Well-Endowed Podcast. Every month, we bring you a collection of stories and interviews with fascinating guests who are working to make Edmonton a strong, vibrant city to live in. Through these stories, we look at the space where endowments intersect with your communities. So if you're interested in the people and issues impacting your community, check out thewellendowedpodcast.com. Well-Endowed Podcast? If you haven't heard us talk about them before, you haven't been paying attention. <laughs> we definitely get their ads more often than anybody else. Oh, yeah. But uh, we are always happy to plug them because they do a lot of good work. You know, uh, I know we have a lot of listeners who are not in Edmonton, uh, who are elsewhere in Alberta, elsewhere in Canada, elsewhere around the world. There are definitely organizations like the Edmonton Community Foundation probably closer to you. You can seek them out and uh, find ways to give back to your own communities yeah. as well. Highly recommend it. Indeed. Support local, right? Yeah. Always support local. So um, you can also support local by going to the Alberta Podcast Network <laughs> Yeah, it's very local to us. Very local to us, at least, yes. Uh, there you can find our podcast and, of course, all the other member podcasts. Definitely a lot of them are worth checking out. Probably all of them. 
Who's to say? <laughs> it depends on your taste, really. And how much time you have. Also that. <laughs> uh, you can find them on your podcatcher of choice. That's probably where you're catching our pod. Maybe give us a little rating and a review. Oh, we would appreciate that. We would show our appreciation via social media. Yes, we are on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Goodreads. We are at the read along on most of those. You can give us a little shout out at any time and we'll probably shout back. Probably. You can also reach us via email. Yes, we are the read along at gmail.com. And with that said, as always, at the end of another book, we love you very much and we'll see you next time. Oh, time for new book smell. Thank you for joining us on The Read Along with your hosts, Anita and Scott Bourgeois, a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network. All read-along music is by Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com. Cover art is by Aaron Beaver. Be sure to join us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at The Read Along, and check out our group on Goodreads.com.